1 Kings 19 tonight, 1 Kings chapter 19. Glad you're here. One more night to go. Now, if there's any night I wouldn't miss, I wouldn't miss tomorrow night. No, I'd miss tonight before I miss tomorrow night. But the parking lot's blocked and the bathroom's broke, so there's no use in thinking about leaving. Might as well just stay and enjoy it. But you don't want to miss tomorrow night. Um, you say, well, what's so special about tomorrow night? Well, it's part of the revival meeting, and it's the last night of the revival meeting. And you don't want to miss, because I always believe God has more in store. I really do. I don't, it doesn't matter how much He's done for you. Uh, this far, He has more in store. And so tomorrow night, let's end on a good note. And, and we recognize that what God is doing in the revival meeting, it is for the purpose that it would last. And God doesn't want us just to have these pep rallies. Pep rallies are fine when you have sports and uh, to, to gear your mind up and pump up the team and the fans before going out before a big game. But that's not what a revival meeting is about. Revival meeting is really a meeting for revival. And revival is not something, it's someone. You know, if somebody were to pass out tonight sitting here in the service and start turning colors and, and just stop breathing, well, we recognize they need some medical attention. 911 may be called, someone performs CPR. And revival is a lot like that. It's recognizing there's a time, and sometimes they're scheduled, regularly scheduled, because we know we need some intensive, um, some consecrated attention given to truths that will get us back to normal Christianity. You need it. I need it. We all need that. And so I'm thankful for these kinds of times and uh, appreciate uh, just the faithfulness. How many have been here uh, for each service so far? Would you raise your hand? It's just a great testimony, and I appreciate very much that. We do have the book table over there. I do want to mention our family time with God. I think something that we all need help with and reminder concerning is family devotions. And uh, Harold Vaughn, an evangelist friend, uh, put these together. They're uh, contributions from different preachers. Very short and as a scripture reading, as an application, and then an action point at the each of uh, each section. And so this is a big book, but it's, uh, it's a big page and not even taking up the whole page. So it doesn't take long. It doesn't need to be a sermon. It's really just to give us a good thought bringing the family together. There's one year's worth in this, and then there's a blue one, a year's worth there. And I think Christy and I have some excerpts in, in one of these as well. But just very, very helpful. They're safe, King James. And, um, and it's just good revival truth to help bring the family together. And then there's other things. The song that Christy sang tonight, it's on her CD, a CD that God really brought together going through some different trials and just some songs that meant something to her that I believe can mean something to you as well as they point us to the one uh, whose name is Jesus. First Kings chapter 19, you have that? Let's stand together if you would please and we'll look at the end of the chapter. And we're going to read about two men here whose names are very similar. One is the older man, older preacher named Elijah. The other is the younger, his name is Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse number 19, the Bible reads, So he, that is Elijah, departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father, my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he, that is Elijah, said unto him, Elisha, go back again, for what have I done to thee? And basically what he's stating there is, I'm not restraining you. You do what you need to do. You're of your own free will. Verse 21. And he, Elisha, returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose, and went after Elijah, and ministered unto him. On his way from Sinai to Damascus, God directs this older Elijah, whose time is coming to a close here upon this earth, and he directs his attention to come across a younger Elisha. Elisha is out in the field plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he with the twelve. Elijah takes his mantle and he wraps it around the shoulders of the younger Elisha. Symbolic for a number of things perhaps, 
But one thing I believe was crystal clear. When Elijah wrapped that mantle around Elisha, he was stating to Elisha this fact. God wants to use you. God wants to use you, Elisha. And God did want to use Elisha. And God did use Elisha. But in order for God to use Elisha, He had to respond properly to that call. Do you know tonight, the same God that used Elisha took him from plowing in the field, making him a preacher of the faith, is the same God that wants to use you tonight, each and every one. And if you and I would but embrace the same ingredients as did Elisha, then we too could find the same God using us and blessing us as did Elisha. The message is simple. Why God used Elisha? Why God used Elisha and how God can use you? Thank you. Please be seated. I'll admit reading through this book and looking at Elisha, these things stood out to me that I'm going to give you. It's just a cursory bird's eye view looking at the life of Elisha. I could take these same ingredients, and in fact, when I came across these, I saw these in one of my readings, I recognized these are the same ingredients that I can find in any man, any woman, any boy or girl ever used of God. But it just so happened I was looking at this with Elisha, and so I want us to look at his life here this evening, just an overview, a flyover view of his life. The first and most basic ingredient as to why God used Elisha, and I believe the most basic ingredient as to how God is going to use us, it's number one, Elisha was a surrendered man. He's a surrendered man. You know, there are no perfect people. God doesn't look for any because there are none, but there is a perfect plan of God. And God's perfect plan requires surrender. You know, God has right and claim to your life. God has right and claim to my life. And the Bible teaches us, I believe, pretty clearly in these verses that we've read, that Elisha is surrendered to the Lord. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 30 and verse number 8, And be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord. The Bible tells us that the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Why? Because the three Hebrew children were not perfect, but they were surrendered. We know this one, Romans 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Aren't you thankful that revival meeting, church life, Christianity, it's really reasonable. God's not asking something of us that is difficult. He's the one who said, my yoke is easy. He said, my burden is light. It's the way of the transgressor that's hard. Surrender to the one who can be trusted. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Romans 14, verse 7 and 8. For no man liveth to himself, no man dieth to himself. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave of their own selves to the Lord, then to us by the will of God. Paul gives us perhaps his autobiography in many one-verse statements, but I think of Philippians 1 and verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a life of surrender. You know, some of the most misunderstood, misused, and misapplied verses that I think of are the ones I see most often in a Christian institution, whether it be college or, or high school, wherever I can find a yearbook. And many times I'll see seniors graduating, they'll have their picture, caption, maybe um, something about them, but many times in a Christian institution, they'll have a life verse. And many, many times I'll see Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 or 6 or 5 and 6. Wonderful verses. But I believe that they're many times some of the most misunderstood, misused, and misapplied verses. 
I think many times people who are at crisis points in their life, they're at a transitional point in their life, they'll hold on to these verses as if these are God's directional verses for my life. These are the verses that God promises to direct me over these unchartered waters or through this pioneer journey that I'm embarking on. Well, the Bible does speak there of the fact that God will direct and God can direct. God is quite capable of doing so. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is not primarily about God leading me or God leading you as much as it is about you surrendering to God. Listen carefully. Trust in the Lord. We could preach a whole message right there. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, He's not pleased with what you do. He's pleased with who you depend upon. The judgment seat of Christ, you'll not get a reward for what you do you'll get a reward for the one you depended upon. You say, I don't believe it. Well, who do you think is going to keep that crown? If you get a crown, you're going to give it right back to the one who earned it. He doesn't just deserve it, but He earns it. The flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit that quickeneth. Jesus tells us, without me you can do nothing. If you and I get a crown, it'll not be because of what we do. It'll be because of the one we depended upon, because it's dependence upon Him that pleases Him. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. I wonder how much of our heart He wants us to trust Him with. Lean not unto thine own understanding. Why would he say that? Maybe he thought in advance in the year 2020 there'd be Christians in our Bible-believing, preaching churches. And of course, he does see far into the future. He knows everything. But he knows that there are people who say things like this. Well, the way I see it is this. Well, you know, the way I figure... It doesn't really matter how you figure it. It doesn't matter how I see it. What matters is, what does He say about it? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. If, if I could just make sense of it. He didn't call you to make sense of it. You know, logic to God is different than logic to man. God's logic is trust and obey. Abraham went out not knowing whither he went. God didn't tell him where he was going. One of the reasons why I believe that God didn't tell Abraham where he was going is because if God told him where he was going, he wouldn't need God for the trip. Trust in the Lord. Not getting many amens, so I'm just going to keep plowing right here. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. Hmm. I, I, I go to church, I don't miss service and read my Bible and praying. Why are you doing on tithing? I, I don't look at who tithes and who doesn't tithe at our church, but our deacons do when it comes to those that are in serving capacities. One of the responsibilities is they need to tithe, among other things. That's only fair because if they're going to be influencers, if they're going to be those that are worth listening to and following, then they need to be lives worth following. And so it's reasonable service that we're talking about. And, and so one was pointed out to me, they've not been tithing. And so I had the one who discipled them and one that was their teacher uh, talk with them. And, and now I know I need to do this. I need to work on this. And the teacher said, why don't you... Bring your finances to me. We can work on this and, and get it figured out. We want to fix it because it's fixable. Because if God says do it, then God will equip and enable you to do it. So a couple years go by. We're still not there. I finally had to go and say, listen, I can't have you working with the children. Children are a big deal. Jesus doesn't want anybody to, to offend and cause them to stumble. That's a big deal. And this too is a big deal. I'm working on it. I'm trying to believe God. And those were the things that came back. And I thought about that. And I thought, you don't have to trust God to tithe. You just obey Him. You don't have to trust Him. 
You just do it. When, when there are things that perhaps is not clear, it may take some trust to obey. But when He says do it, you just obey. You're robbing God. You have a curse upon your life. I've thought about putting a, a sign outside of the house when people come over and ask the question, do you tithe? Because if you're willing to rob God, you might rob me and I don't want you to come in, in my house robbing me. It's a big deal. I would rather rob you than rob God, but people have the audacity to rob God. Why? Because they're not trusting in the Lord with all their heart. They're not uh, going with what He says to do. They're leaning to their own understanding. They're not acknowledging Him in all of their ways. How, how is your attendance to church? So I'm here tonight. Where are you going to be Saturday? I think his pastor said there's outreach on Saturday. Where are you going to be Sunday morning? Where are you going to be Sunday night? It's a sad commentary when your kids have to ask, are we going to church? Christy does really good with, with ours. And when we're having a special meeting like this, they'll say, do we have to go to church tonight? She'll say, nope. You get to. And one of the things that thrills my heart, it really does, is they, they love going to church. And I'm thankful for a church family that understands and loves them and recognizes they need to, to be able to grow. They're, they're, they're a handful. They're Ingrams. And so uh, they're a handful for sure. I, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the time to, to do that. Just... <laughs> She's been watching them these days. And so, um, but uh, I, I, it, it's... It's a thrill that they are thrilled with the church. That's the way it ought to be. Amen. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and then He shall direct thy path. You see, it's primarily about my surrender to Him. You and I surrender to Him. You can, be, you can bank on the fact and be guaranteed God will step in, God will lead. But if you don't surrender to Him, you're really in essence on your own. You're saying, God, I can take care of it. I can handle it. Well, what is surrender? Surrender is simply a willingness to do anything that God wants me to do. It's a willingness to do anything that God wants me to do. Are you willing to do anything that God wants you to do? Sometimes people will say, well, I'm willing to do anything as long as I don't have to be a missionary and go to Africa. I don't know why we pick on Africa, um, but people will think that as long as I don't have to go do that. Uh, are you willing to do anything that God wants you to do? Maybe God would have you go get something right with somebody. I'll not do it. Then you're not surrendered. Surrender is a willingness to do anything that God wants me to do, and it is an obedience to everything that God tells me to do. There's another example in the Bible. His name is Saul. When Saul got saved in Acts chapter 9, first words out of his mouth that are recorded in the Scripture is this, Lord, what will Thou have me to do? That's a good question. And Jesus answered and said, Arise and go into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So here you find Saul, who later became Paul. He was willing to do anything, and Jesus said, Get up and go to town. And he obeyed God in everything that he was told to do. You know why I believe Saul became Paul, writer of half the New Testament, great missionary preacher, and great Christian, and, and all the other accolades we can give him? Because I believe Saul, Paul's testimony was, Willing to do anything, obedient to God in everything. That's surrender. And by the way, this is not a preacher level course. It's not a seminary level course. This is not for graduated disciples. This is basic kindergarten level Christianity. Surrender. Willing to do anything, obedient to God in everything. What does it say of Elisha? When he was confronted by Elijah, God wants to use you. The Bible says Elisha went back and he took the yoke of oxen. He took the plow and he burned the plow. He took a cow and he killed the cow. That's his livelihood. 
And yet he takes that which he is tied to, maybe that's his identity, and the Bible says he burned the plow and he killed the cow. Might there be a plow or a cow in your life that needs to be dealt with this evening? Now here's one of the tragedies about surrender. Sometimes when preaching a message about salvation or a gospel message, sometimes Christians will kind of turn it off or tune it off and, and maybe kind of sit back and just breathe a sigh of relief because this doesn't apply to me tonight. I've already taken care of the salvation matter. Unfortunately, people do the same when it comes to surrender because they say to themselves, I've taken care of this. I've already done this. In fact, I can take you to the place where I surrendered here at the altar one revival meeting. I can take you to the missions conference where I surrendered. I can go way back in school whenever there was an opening revival or a preacher and I surrendered. I remember at camp where I surrendered to God. And this doesn't apply to me tonight. I'm off the hook tonight. And that's a great tragedy because it's a great misunderstanding about Bible surrender. Listen. Surrender and salvation have similarities. They're similar in the sense that no one gets saved and no one gets surrendered by accident. No one gets saved and no one is ever surrendered automatically. They both require a decision by you and me. But the difference between salvation and surrender is that salvation is a one-time event. It's kind of like getting married. I'm thankful Whenever I said I do, my wife said I do, the preacher said we did, I don't have to do it again. I know there are some, they get to a certain point in their life, maybe that 40, 50 year mark, and they renew their wedding vows and have a, a, a little ceremony or a big ceremony. You do whatever you want to do. But it was too much work and too much money the first time around for me. I ain't doing it again. And I don't have to, it worked just fine the first time. I'm glad salvation worked the first time around. Jesus died one time, buried, rose again. And I don't have to do it again. If I ever had to get saved again, He'd have to die again. That's not going to happen. But hear me, surrender. It's not a one-time event. It's daily. It's daily. Why? Because new opportunities and new obstacles come into our life. And daily we need to be willing to do anything obedient to God in everything. Daily we ought to say, Lord, what will Thou have me to do? And when He makes it clear, then do it. Burn the plow, kill the cow. Do it daily. You say, I got right, I got surrendered last night. Do you know that in the last 24 hours, a lot of opportunities and a lot of obstacles may have come into our life. There's a need to be willing to do anything and obedient to God in everything. Daily surrender. Anytime you take back and you live the Christian life with a closed fist, hear me, you have left the Christ life. I didn't say you lose your salvation, but you've lost the life, the dynamic of the not I, but Christ life. The Christ life surrender is going around with open hands. My family, it belongs to God. My ministry, it belongs to God. Anything I have, He's given to me. It's on loan by God to see how I will use it, how I will manage it, how I will steward, steward it for His honor and glory. Number one, Elisha was a surrendered man. Number two, take your Bible and go over to 2 Kings chapter 2, and we'll finish up over here. 2 Kings chapter 2, you're awfully quiet tonight, are y'all still with me? Anybody else other than those three? All right. 2 Kings chapter number 2. And here we find this chapter, Elijah is going to move off the scene, going to go up into heaven. Verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from... And the last word of verse 1 is Gilgal. If we were to read verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see a similar statement over and over. Now look at it in verse 2. And so Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. The Bible says the sons of the prophets that were there at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it, hold ye your peace. 
And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets came on the scene and said the same thing again. Verse 6, And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he, that is Elisha, said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. Now, if you were to take this, well, first understand, Elijah is telling Elisha, God's called me, God's told me, I've got to go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and over to Jordan. And each time, Elijah is telling Elisha, stay here. You might want to stay put. God's telling me, here's where I'm going to go. If you were to take a map and look at the geography of it, pastor probably know this better. I just read it. I've never been over to the Bible lands, and so I don't know if you could even see this, this journey, but my reading and my looking at the map, you look at the geography of it, it's not an easy hike. But then you look at the topography of it, it certainly is not an easy hike. And so Elijah says to Elisha, you need to stay put. I don't think he was saying it because of the geography or the topography of it. I think he's telling him that because of the difficulty of just being in the will of God. Not that it's just hard, because the way of the transgressor is hard. I've already mentioned that. But it requires something else. When you're willing to do anything and obedient to God in everything, and there's a surrender that is there, there's another ingredient. And every time Elijah says, you need to stay put, you, you don't want to go on this journey. I appreciate what you've done and I've invested in you to this point, but, but it's okay if you want to stay put here. And Elijah's response every time was this, as long as God is alive and you're alive, I'm staying with you. I want to tell you, here's another missing ingredient. But it's a key ingredient as to why God used Elisha. And it's the same ingredient as to how God's going to use us. Number one, he surrendered. Number two, I want to tell you, I believe with all my heart, Elisha is making it loud and clear. He is serious. He's serious about the things of God. You know, one of the tragedies, I believe, of the emerging church, the left-leaning toppling over church, the happy clapping with no life and depth. It's drawing a crowd, but they're not making disciples. The casual is there for a reason. It's communicating the fact, as I said Sunday, we want to have church, but we don't want to be too churchy. And they're communicating the fact, we're not that serious about the things of God. I want to tell you, God... Is pretty serious about you. Jesus Christ was very serious about your soul. And the Bible is telling us that those who are His disciples are serious. In fact, Jesus is the one who said, and by, by the way, He never said you can't be saved. But He did say on occasion, you cannot be My disciple unless. He said you can't be My disciple unless you Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me daily. He said, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your spouse, yea, even your own life also. Now, every Bible student understands he's not talking about having this bitter anger, hatred towards somebody else. But what Jesus is saying is the comparison. Your love for Him ought to make your love for others look like hatred. Jesus says, you can't follow me. You can't come after me. You are not my disciple unless. I want to tell you again, that's not the average attitude of a lot of these churches that are out there. These churches, you, you come as you are, and you're going to end up leaving as you were. And God is a God of transformation. God is a God who loves you, who wants to do His work of putting His DNA in you and putting His stamp of approval upon you so that someday you can hear, Well done, now good and faithful servant. That sounds like it's going to take a little bit of seriousness. Jim Elliot, you recognize the name? The martyr, 
one of the those who gave their lives trying to reach the Alka Indians, the one who said he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. When Jim Elliott was in Bible college, there was a young lady who had her eye on him by the name of uh, Elizabeth. She was interested in him. He had great character. He had some integrity. But she wasn't sure how he may have felt about her. So she did what many have done, took her yearbook to him while they were in Wheaton College and asked if he would sign it. He signed it. She went back to her room and Elizabeth um, uh, said that she went there hoping she could find some secret message in the writing, maybe a little heart or smiley face, maybe something that was there. And what she found was just a Bible verse and his name. Well, she thought maybe the secret, maybe the hidden message is in the Bible verse. She turned to the reference, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, and she read these words. No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier of Jesus Christ. Signed, Jim Elliot. And she said, I got the idea. And I admired him even more. You know what I think of when I think of Jim Elliot? He's serious. He's serious. Are you serious about the things of God? Are you even serious about coming to church? You know, I wonder how often you've come to church and, and you wonder, I wonder if our pastor's going to show up Sunday morning, you know? Never know. Sunday afternoon, I wonder if he's going to be back to church on Sunday night. You know, you're not going to have to wonder that too often unless he has another ministry engagement or he's on a vacation, which would not be very often. You don't wonder that. The people of this church don't have to wonder that. But I wonder how often the pastor of this church wonders whether or not the, the committed members, that's what a member ought to be, a committed member, whether or not you're going to be in your place. Proverbs 25, 19, confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Trying to put confidence in someone that's not dependable, that's not faithful, is like a broken tooth. That hurts. It's like a foot out of joint. That hinders progress. And there are many a person that is hurting the body and hindering the progress because they're not faithful. Luke 16.10 He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in that which is least is unjust also in much. Moreover, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2 It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. One of the things I love about uh, going out to visit some of the national parks is just seeing the things that God created. And I love going out when we visited Yellowstone and Saw Old Faithful. I'm not sure what I admired more. The fact that it was old or the simple fact that it was just faithful. You may not be much, but you can be found faithful. Are you serious about the things of God? I hear Christians joke about things that it makes me wonder how, how you can do that with a good conscience. I can't I can't tell any jokes about hell. Yet I'll hear people talk about hell and they'll talk about three people went to hell and, and they'll give a, a joke. I don't think there's anything that's worth joking about hell. I can't joke about Jesus Christ. There's no name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. There's only one name that at the mere mention of it, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Everyone has an appointment where you will fully bow and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the future. It only makes sense to do it now. Every knee. That means your real ones and your artificial ones. They're all going to bow. No one's getting out of it. Are we serious? about Jesus. Here's one. How serious are we about preaching? I think if there's a bad and wrong attitude about preaching, I sometimes think it's 
us preachers fall. I, 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 don't, I don't really find the humor in some of the things that people may say about preaching. I mean, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll hear, I, I've been in meetings where they'll say, hey preacher, the, the, the meeting really gets going and we, we, we start testifying and stuff and God moves in. Don't feel pressured to preach. I don't feel pressured to preach. I'm going to do it. Don't feel pressured. God called me to do it. People talk about, oh man, you know, preaching's long. What? It's by the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen to save the souls of men. We've got this mindset and there are preachers who, who will try to keep it in to 25 and 30 and 35 minutes. I understand schedules. I understand people are busy. I understand stuff is going on. But doesn't God say that His Word is like a hammer? And yet all preachers have done, many of them, they've just been pecking around. There's no pounding taking place. I'm telling you, I felt the pressure moving into the pastor. You know, I need to shorten this thing up. I listen, I listen to all the, 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 the philosophies and, and all the, the uh, stats and surveys. How long do you preach and how, and everyone's, we're trying to get it in. You got to get in 35 minutes, 40 minutes. If you do, if you don't, uh, you lose people's attention. And I feel like, man, I, I gotta, I gotta tighten this thing up. I gotta trim it down. And then I began to think about this. No wonder we're in a mess. No wonder the people in our pews, they can't stay married. They can't keep committed to one another. No wonder we don't have people showing up, going soul winning, knocking on doors. No wonder the prayer meeting is the smallest meeting in our churches. No wonder people have grown up in churches and they're still struggling with alcohol and tobacco. They're, they're plagued with pornography. No wonder. And yet the one who ought to be the free agent to listen to God is more in tune to how people feel about it. I'll tell you what we need. What we need is just some timeless preaching that will allow the Word of God to create a, well, I call it our church, this is a crock-pot atmosphere. And it's got to simmer. I believe if the the platform, if the pulpit stays hot on fire and the Word of God is the authority and the Word of God is that which we give it room and we give it time to, to ruminate and to cultivate hearts, it'll do its job. Amen. But we can't claim, well, the Word of God is not going to return void if we don't give it the opportunity to go. Well, you know, I just, when I listen to Joel Osteen, you know, he just, he just, he just doesn't, it's a tragedy Joyce Meyer can out-preach Joel Osteen. And I can't help it if that's what your appetite has been feeding on. I don't want to tell you. We need to get serious about the things that God is serious about. I wonder what time it is. I'll tell you what time it is. Hosea 10 and verse 12. It's time to seek the Lord till He comes. How are we doing? I believe God used Elisha because he's serious. Elijah's telling him, listen, you've got to count the cost. Jesus said the same thing to the disciples. You've got to count the cost. He is, he's serious about the things of God. But here's another aspect of that. He's serious about the man of God. He's serious about the man of God. What's your attitude towards your pastor? I, I, I know pastor jokes and I know people joke and, and there's a place for joking, but there's a place where there needs to be a serious understanding of this Bible truth. I say, 
this all the time, so much so that we put into a track three things everybody needs. Number one, you need a personal relationship with the Lord. That's salvation. Number two, everybody needs a church family. Number three, everybody needs a pastor. When I was traveling as an evangelist, I had a, a struggle for a period of time, a crisis, praying about where am I going to base long term? Where am I going to base? Because that's the terminology everybody else would use. Missionaries and evangelists and others and, and ministry work. Where are you going to base? And I had older evangelists, well-known evangelists, evangelists that I looked to and received counsel from who would say things like this. Ingram, you need to find a church somewhere that no one knows anything about where you can fly under the radar screen so you will not be under the thumb of a pastor. That's so what my wife will tell you for years. We were praying, God, what do we do? Where are we going to go? We thought we had a place here. We thought we had a place there. We, and it was just, I, I, I didn't want to make the wrong decision. It's a big deal. I didn't know where to base. God dealt with me. God, and then God was so gracious to help me with this. And I want to tell you, it was life-changing. I came to the revelation. I came to the understanding, Brother Lloyd. I didn't need to base anywhere. I didn't need to base anywhere. As an evangelist, God brought me to the conclusion, I didn't need to base anywhere. I needed to belong. And I realized, I need a pastor. I don't want to be under the thumb of a pastor, the way someone made that sound. I wanted to be under the leadership. And I don't know of a good pastor. I don't, I don't know the good pastors who want people under their thumb. I don't want anybody under my thumb. I'm not the priest of anybody's home other than mine. I'm a pastor of a local church. And your pastor thinks the same way. He doesn't want to be a priest of, over, over anybody else's home. But I recognize as an evangelist, I believe every pastor needs to use the evangelist, but I believe every evangelist needs a pastor. Not just a preacher. Not just somebody who can marry and bury. Not just someone who can preach your funeral someday. Not a place where you can just put your tithe. You need a pastor. And God brought me to the conclusion, I need a pastor. Not just a pastor, but God brought me to the place where I recognized, I need a church family. You know what I find in Matthew 12, Mark 3, the same illustration? We've got those who are coming to Jesus and they say, I think he's got a devil in him. They said, he's beside himself, meaning he's mad. He's crazy. And so his mother and his sisters are coming. I believe the sisters are with the mother. They're coming looking for Jesus. They're hearing something is not right with Jesus. He's mad. He's beside himself. And they said, your mother is here. Your sisters are here. Your brethren are here. Your family, Jesus, your family is here. And Jesus said, who is my family? Well, humanly, it doesn't look like He's helping His cause about being crazy. His mother, His sisters, standing here and, who's my family? And then He points to the disciples, Peter, James, and John, he said, here's my mother. No, his mother's over there. He says, no, here's my mother, and here's my sister, and here's my brother. I also wonder what Peter's thinking. Uh, no, no I, 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 don't, I don't know about this. And he explains the next verse why he says that. Because the one that is in tune to doing the will of his Father, that's my family. There are people that are in angst about the fact blood's thicker than water. I've got to be closer to my family than the church. I don't see it. Biologically, you have something, but the blood of Jesus, to me, takes precedence over everything else. I am closer to our church family than my own physical family. Why? Because there is a group of people who have committed and band together to do the will of the Father, and we have more in common. I love my family. I believe you ought to love your family. And I'm talking about extended family. And there may be some, some, some things where you'll just never be able to, to have quite that closeness. But take heart. Jesus said, my family are the ones that desire to do the will of my Father just like me.
I want to say everybody needs a church family. You need to belong to a church family. People have come since I've been the pastor at Canaan and have said, thinking about our ministry, here's what we do. I wonder if you would let us base out of this church. I said, that's the wrong question. The question I have for you is, are you willing to belong? I don't need your tithe and you don't need a place to make your conscience feel good. You need a church family. You need to belong. You need to recognize that the family needs you and you need them. You need to understand that Jesus died for the church and it is God's will for everyone who is saved to be a member and not just a member but a part of and and contributing to this local church. It's God's will for you to have a pastor. Someone says, well, if, if I had a pastor that was like Elijah, I'd follow him. To which I say, you wouldn't want Elijah to be your pastor. All you have to do is read chapter 1 of 2 Kings. The Bible says Elijah's sitting up on a mountain. He's done ticked off King Ahab, and Ahab sends a captain 50 men, and he goes to the bottom of the mountain and says, Oh man of God, you come down, the king said. And Elijah said, If I be a man of God, let the fire of God come down. The fire of God came down, and it killed that captain with 50 men. There's a second captain with 50 men came to the bottom of the mountain and said, Oh man of God, the king said, You better come down, and you better come down now. And Elijah said, if I'd be a man of God, let the fire come down and consume you. That fire fell, killed that captain and 50 men. I believe the smartest man in the Old Testament up until this point is the third captain. If you had to step over 102 dead bodies to get to the preacher, I think you'd change your attitude as well. You go back and read it on your own. I'll just paraphrase. The third captain comes to the bottom of the mountain stepping over 102 dead bodies. And he said something like this, Oh, man of God. Would you come down, if it works out for you, you pray about it, you get the mind of God, and only if it works out. And God tells Elijah, go ahead. And Elijah listened to God. I'll tell you this, and you know this enough, Elijah was not perfect. He, Yes, he saw the fire of God fall, but he wasn't perfect. He also, he had some problems. He got worn out. He got burned out. He got intimidated by Jezebel. Elijah is a man, we are told, just like us. He wasn't perfect. And do you know, there are no perfect parents. There are no perfect preachers. But again, there's a perfect plan of God. But here's what you will not find. You'll never find Elisha undermining. You'll never find Elisha confronting. You'll never find Elisha putting Elijah in his place. Listen to me. You want the blessings of God. Listen. Let me see if I can word it different. Nowhere in the Bible do I ever see God blessing people who are not right with the authority in their life. Mainly the man of God. You want to find God's blessing in your life, you better make sure you're right with the man of God. I say, if you want God's blessing in your life, you better make sure you're right with the man of God. It's not who he is, it's what he is, pastor. The Bible doesn't say, husbands, love your Christie. Because your wife may not be named Christie. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit yourself to your own jerk. What, you know, whatever. It's, it's not who he is, it's what he is. Children, obey your parents. Obey them that have the rule over you. In that context, it's pastor. You say, oh, you're doing this for pastor's sake. No, no, I'm doing this for your sake. I'm trying to get you to see the place of God's blessing is under His umbrella of leadership, the church with the pastor. Well, I'm looking for a place where I can have some influence. Hey, get on board. Jump on in. The water's fine. I tell our deacons, I think um, every one of you should have a say-so. I want every deacon to have a say. But you're wrong. I told our deacons, you're wrong if you think you have to have your way. You need to have your say, but not everybody's going to have their way. 
Do you understand that even as a pastor, sometimes people think, well, I can't wait till I be a pastor because when I'm a pastor, I get to do everything I want to do. And I know there are people who may think, Brother Ingram gets to do everything he wants to do. I want to tell you, that's not true. I don't know how many things I have done because I wanted to do it. I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing the very best I can to do what I think God wants to do. Do you know that if your pastor were to pastor a different church, he he would pastor it different? Because the people would be in a different place in their journey. I'm not going into Canaan saying, here's what I've got. I've had these five things down. I couldn't wait to do these five things. And I'm going to start knocking these five things down. That's not it. I had to figure out where are these people? God, these are your people. These are not my people. I sometimes hear pastors say, these are my people. These are not my people. These are God's people. And I'm just simply trying to do what God would have me to do and be what God would have me to be. And I'm trying to figure out where they are. Where does God want me to start with them? I know where we want to go. God wants us to go on to maturity. God wants us to go deeper in our walk with Him. But it's not me doing what I want to do and no pastor who loves the Lord is just trying to do what he wants to do. He's trying to do what would help the people to be used of God. So understand. You need to be right with the man of God. And so whenever we figured that out in evangelism, ah, it was a watershed. I, I can't, I just can't. Everything changed. No one taught me this, but as an evangelist, I really looked at my gifting, what I was as an evangelist, to be greater than the church. This is what I am. This is what I'm doing for God. And God began to help me see, no, the church is greater than what I do. The church is greater than who I am. Listen, I'm not going uh, into the pastorate. I'm not going uh, so that the church can help my ministry. I'm going there to allow God to use me to help them. I think a lot of pastors, they have such short tenures because they're they're using a church to build their ministry. What we need is for men who will be servants of the Most High and allow God to fill and lead them to help a people. We have churches that are sheep without an under-shepherd because we're trying to build our own kingdom. But whenever I figured out the church is greater than me, the church is greater than what I do. And I believe this is true. God says, you honor me, I'll honor you. We honor the church. My pastor, I don't think he really cared where I was most of the time. I really don't. But I let him know where I was. I let him know what we were doing. And listen, if he ever, if he ever even grimaced about the fact, ah, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with this. I didn't do it. I could have, but I didn't. I wanted the blessings of God upon my life. I wish I could tell you, Pastor, it was at that point where God blew open the doors for my ministry. As I mentioned, I didn't call for meetings. I didn't solicit meetings. I know others do. I don't have anything uh, against that. It's just the will of God for me. I didn't do that. And so I would write them down on the list. I put it out before God. I prayed to God. And God answered those prayers. And one of those was preaching at the Sword of the Lord conference. It was that very next year after this happening. And God did those things one right after another. But the greatest answer to prayer was where God answered that prayer of 16 years. Lord God, would You give us a child? Oh God, would You do that which humanly seems impossible? And I believe with all my heart we have a Priscilla and then a Will and a Gretchen because we honored what God honors. You need a church to belong to. When I got to Canaan, there were those who left. And I had people who said, we've been here 20 to 30 years. And they would literally say this to me. Why don't you just let us come to church and leave us alone? And I thought to them, I went home at night and I would sometimes lay upon my pillow and just cry. And I would ask Ingram, why can't you just leave them alone? Because this isn't my church. You're not my people. I'm not here for you. I'm here for Him. You don't want God to leave you alone. 
And I've got to recognize that there are people who still struggle because of how you've been brought up in church. And sometimes the way we've been brought up, we think, is the way it ought to happen. But if you're not connected in a lively way, and if you're not functioning as a true family member of this church, and you're not, your heart and soul is not here, and you're not under the accountability of this church, then you don't understand what it means to belong. You need to belong. Someone says, I attend, I just won't join. Well, that's awfully convenient. That's part of the problem with our with our country. People want to be here without being here legally. They want the benefits without putting in the commitment. Listen, they ought not be said of the people of God. If Jesus shed His blood for the church, then you ought to see it's a big deal to be a part of it. You need to belong. You need the man of God. You need the man of God. Yeah. Your children need it. Can I give you one last one? I'm going to anyway. Look if you would. In verse number 9, And it came to pass when they were going over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Elijah said unto him, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I'm taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And we understand here Elijah gets taken up in the whirlwind. And notice verse 13, And Elisha takes up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. He went back, stood by the bank of Jordan. He takes the mantle that fell from Elijah. He smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. So many things here, but I just, if I could sum it up and stick with the alliteration, not trying to force it, but I do think we're looking at these verses, what I see in Elisha is this, by his desire, by the request, by what he does, how he handles things, I see this. Elisha was not only surrendered, willing to do anything obedient to God and everything. Not only was he serious about sticking with the man of God and serious about the things of God, but number three, He's simply a spiritual man. What do you want? Elisha said, I'd like some recognition around here. No, that's not what he said. What do you want? Well, I'd like a pay raise. That's not what he said. What do you want, Elisha? I want a double portion of what God's done in your life. Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. I want to say this, to get the blessings of God upon your life that's not as hard as some may think. It's easy to get the blessings of God. I think what's hard is to get to the place where you could get the blessings of God. Because Elijah said, if you see me when I'm taken up, it'll happen. But if you're not, if you don't see it, what is he saying? You've got to be in the right place. Where's that place? Sticking with the man of God. You've been surrendered. You've been serious up until this point. It might get tougher. Are you still serious? I think Elisha's idea was, God's been good to me this far. No need to doubt Him now. And Elisha was right there. He's spiritual. It's a spiritual appetite. And the Bible says when Elijah was taken, Elisha went and took that mantle. He picked up that mantle. And he went over to the waters. And he said, Where is another Elijah. That's what I've done. Hey, I've got a problem. Let me um, look up a few phone numbers here of some preachers I know. You know what Elisha learned from Elijah? It's what every younger person ought to be learning from you. It's what every younger Christian ought to be learning from you. How to get a hold of God. Elisha said, and there are preachers, preacher boys looking on. And Elisha said, I know one thing I learned from Elijah. I learned how to get a hold of God. God, where are you? And he took that mantle and he smote the waters, casting his dependence upon God and God alone. And the Bible says the waters parted hither and thither. I think that's God's way of saying, Elisha, here I am for you too. We're told... One commentator that I read said, Elijah performed eight um, miracles in his lifetime. Elisha said, I want a double portion. When Elisha died, he had performed 15 miracles. Eight plus eight is 15. And so he got exactly that which he asked for. Now usually that tells me who the homeschoolers are. 
Because <laughs> usually they're the ones saying, Mom, can't tell him he's wrong about that. And I just want to point that out. Well, we look at that and we think, well, he got gypped. Remember that dead body got thrown into the grave with the bones of Elisha and that dead body touched the bones of Elisha. That dead body came to life number 16. I sometimes wonder if Elisha's not saying, hey, ask for a triple portion. See, the fact is we have not because we... See, in other words, what's your desire? What is it you really... Do you want to be used of God? If you do, 